Hello everyone and welcome to the podcast on clinicians and their mental health journey. My name is Melissa Wilkinson and I'll be your host today. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Pharmaco Australia Limited, suppliers of CareSense blood glucose monitoring systems. Always read the label and follow the directions for use. Your healthcare professional will advise you whether these products are suitable for you. www.pharmacodiabetes.com.au Today, I'm very excited to have Dr. Grant Cinnamon from the Bella Minso Brain and Behavioural Centre with me. Um, Dr. Grant Cinnamon is a clinical psychologist and director of clinical services and research and the founder of the Bella Minso Brain and Behaviour Centre based on the Gold Coast in Queensland, which we'd all like to be today. (laughs) Um, Dr. Cinnamon has lived with type 1 diabetes for more than 40 years himself and has a child who also is living with diabetes. His research and clinical experience as well as his lived experience with diabetes will provide invaluable insight into the mental health of people living with diabetes as well as the mental health of clinicians. Hello, Grant, and how are you today? Hey, Melissa, uh, and hello to everyone listening. I'm great, thanks, Um, and thanks very much for asking. How are you doing? Okay, so today we'll be discussing the mental health of clinicians. How prevalent, prevalent, sorry, are mental health conditions for clinicians? Uh, so uh, that's a pretty big question, um, and I guess it's the crux of sort of what we're talking about and why we're here. Look, look, I guess the first thing to say, Melissa, is that diabetes educators and clinicians working with diabetes come from the same population as all the rest of us, and so we're going to experience mental health challenges similar to what everybody else does, irrespective of the fact that we work with diabetes. So we need to be aware of that, that working with diabetes doesn't protect us from all the other things that everybody else might experience in life. So number one, you will see mental health issues at the same kind of rates that you're going to see in general population, relatively speaking. So that's the first thing to sort of, I guess, say. The other thing, I guess, is that working in a profession with with people with a chronic condition can be very, very taxing. And so we who work in this field have to have a very sort of special philosophy on life and and a way of seeing things in order to protect us. Um, So mental health challenges are quite prevalent for those of us working in this space. The exact numbers aren't well known. Often those of us who work in this space are pretty reluctant to want to tell anybody about our own trials and tribulations. Um, so we do tend to suffer in silence a little bit, and that's one of the problems in and of itself because, you know, a burden shared is burden halved, as they say. So it is quite prevalent. The types of conditions that we see are generally around things like burnout. Uh, that would be the main sort of idea, I guess, centred around what, what we would experience. Yes, for sure. Have, have we seen any changes in the recent years? I guess so with the COVID and um, things everyone's been experiencing. Absolutely. Look, that has been a phenomenon for all of us. If you talk to anyone who works in any sort of emergency space or acute health space, they'll tell you that um, mental health has been a really, really big issue with COVID. Social isolation, um, challenges of working more and more on our own, everything happening online, podcasts being a good example, uh, increased that as an issue as well. So, yes, there has been quite a marked increase in mental health challenges. The other factor is that often for those of us who are in care professions, our mental health is impacted by the well-being of those people we care for. And COVID has really been something that has seen a lot of people's health in general suffer. And so we 
get into those spots where we might feel a little bit more helpless. You know, we, we're not sure how we can help. We get frustrated. Um, we, we get that loss of control, that sense of loss of control, and that impacts our own mental well-being as well. Are there any unique things such as risks of mental health conditions that our listeners, the CDEs who care for people living with diabetes, should be aware of? Look, I think the main risk for those of us living, uh, those of us who work in the space, is the idea about burnout and the factors that come from increased burnout. So we see things like increased anxieties, increased need for control and, and sense of loss of control. So you'll see us get snappier and we'll be the grumpy pants in the room often. We'll often lose a lot of motivation, so we, we don't maybe exercise as well as we should. We take shortcuts in our own self-care and sometimes walking around the block isn't as um, expedient as that glass of wine at the end of the day. So we see those kinds of challenges come about. And, you know, perhaps then as we do get more into those less beneficial habits, we start to see things like depression and things um, kick in as well. So that's, you know, from a care perspective, those of us who are carers, that's the first thing that that I would say. Um, in terms of those of us uh, working in this space, looking at those with diabetes, that's a really big picture and, uh, and there are a lot of issues, a lot of similarities, the anxieties, the depressions, adjustment issues and things like that, but it also branches a little bit further afield um, depending on whether we're working with an older population or, or a younger population. What are the, some of the common mental health conditions that clinicians experience as a result of their roles? So uh, as I was just talking about, probably, you know, the big one is burnout and the mental health factors that come with that. So the one that probably sticks to mind the most is things like depression type conditions where we kind of just get exhausted we lose interest in things that are going on around us we feel a little bit hopeless you know there might be that one or two challenging people we're working with and we start to take that on board much more readily um, as kind of personal failures and so we feel a lower sense of self-worth uh, that then affects things like our sleeping habits it affects our dietary practices our exercise routines and things so uh, depression number one we lose our interest in those things that normally help us deal with it. So we lose interest in exercising, we lose interest in socialising with our friends or families, um, we lose interest in walking the dog or even just cuddling the dog on the couch. So those things then spiral us and, and make it worse. So that would be the first thing, that kind of notion of depressive type of characteristics um, that come with burnout. The other that comes to that is um, increased sort of anxiety type factors where we worry more, we get a greater sense of need of control of situations, we start to procrastinate. Um, and those two things are probably the most prevalent types of experiences that you're going to see in clinicians that are related to their profession, as opposed to, as I said, general population things that you're going to experience um, in any large group of, of people. And they do centre on that notion of burnout, exhaustion, fatigue, from, um, from the amount of work we do and the outcomes we may be experiencing in that work. Okay, thanks. Um, how can clinicians identify some of these conditions they may experience? Are there any signs or any symptoms to be aware of? Absolutely, there are. And this is where part of the isolation has caused some problems because we're not, in the same way that we were historically, we're not hanging out with colleagues as much. We're not spending as much time 
in the presence of other people who are often the best judges in those early stages of things like burnout, fatigue, depression, anxieties, because they see those subtle changes in our behaviours that we often won't see. There used to be that sort of old adage of someone who was dealing with issues, we'd sort of say, oh, you're in denial, you know, you're not seeing what's there. But what we know about mental health issues is often when it comes to things like depression and anxiety and, and burnout, is that as we become more impacted by those things, our brains actually lose the ability to recognise those things. And so it's not that we're in denial, it's that we literally don't see it sometimes. And so the first thing I'd say is having quality connections around you is really, really important. Being able to check in with people, people see those subtle shifts, your, your um, you know, walking partner or your, um, you know, the, the friends that you go out to dinner with once a week or whatever it might be. When you start sort of saying, oh, I'm too tired, I'm not going to come tonight or, um, you know, no, I've got too much work to do, they're, they're for others are going to be the warning signs that they really need to perk up and say, oh, hang on, what's what's happening here? Come on, you really need that time out so that, so that you've got those external checks and balances for you. Internally, we want to get used to those same things. We want to identify a few things that can be really, really powerful as those checks and balances for our own mental well-being, if you like. The first thing is we really want to not wait until we start to see overt warning signs of changes to our mental health or changes to our own well-being. Um, we want to start to see things very early. So taking stock, I take stock on a daily basis of my own well-being. I'm going to get to the end of the day and I look at what's going on and and what the day's been like to identify and even looking forward, identify what I would call stresses in your life. What are the things that you know in advance preemptively that are going to put added pressure on you, that are going to be the things that impact your well-being, the frustrations, the the, what, the, the workloads, the, the upcoming whatever it might be. Identify those things early and be aware that they're going to take a toll so that you are already starting to protect yourself and do things to mitigate those risks nice and early in the piece, yeah? Uh, I think that's, that's the first thing. The second thing is to really be aware of uh, what those warning signs might look like when you start to sort of get into a bit of a downward trajectory in, in terms of mental well-being. What does it look like for you? I mentioned some of those things before, like, you know, avoiding going for the walk in the afternoon, grabbing that glass of wine instead of cuddling the dog or, you know, increasing the amount of takeaway we grab on the way home instead of going home and cooking a good meal, wanting to sort of bury yourself in front of the TV or, or inside a book and disappear and socially isolate rather than connect with family, connect with friends. Those things are really clear indicators. They're really clear warning signs that something's, something's going on. So there are a couple of things I'd say really, really important to um, to be aware of and to look at. A way that I kind of um, advocate for people to, to be able to do this really, really well, uh, Melissa, is to try and move your professional career, professional activities away from the idea of being goals-based in your day and think about the things you do at work from the construct of a values-based approach. So, in, in a space, in, in a world where our profession, our professional outcomes are often dictated by circumstances that we don't have a lot of control over, 
we can provide advice, we can provide support, we can do the things that that we do really, really well. But at the end of the day, the outcomes from that advice is not up to us. And so when we have a sort of a goals-based approach or an objectives, outcomes-based approach, we can often get a sense of being out of control, burnout will come much quicker, um, and that mental health challenge will come much quicker. If we kind of live our life based on or our professional careers based on what's important to us, what do we value about this role, and we do those things every day, we can get to the end of the day and we can always ask ourselves the question, how do I know today's been a good day? Now, it may have been from a goals approach or from a practical approach, a pretty stressful day. But if we've lived sort of being true to those values that we're working towards the things that we hold dear, it can still be a day that can be for us, you know, an achievement, something that, that we can feel good about having done to some extent. And I think that's a really important element of being aware because when we do start to get burnout, again, the awareness is that we start to move from that and we start to trip into the short-term goals, control-based orientation in our jobs rather than living within that sort of flow of what our values are and what's important to us about the work we do. Great. Thank you. Some great tips in there. Um, what does the literature tell us about mental health and its impact on clinician performance? Is there any research also being done in this space and on this topic? Look, there's loads of research being done in the context of professionals and their well-being and mental health. Specifically around, say, diabetes educators or diabetes clinicians, not necessarily specific to that, but in healthcare professionals in general, um, whether it's allied health, whether it's primary health, there is certainly lots and lots of research done. Yes, the, the, the very simple summary of that research is poor mental health equals poor performance. If you're not managing your own mental health well, if you're not doing everything you can to make sure you're up and at your best, you are not going to be able to give your best to others. That's really the crux of, of what the research tells us. And it affects us in, in so many different ways. You know, it affects our motivation. So procrastination becomes an issue. Job well done is now job half done instead. Um, our executive functions get in the way. So we start forgetting to do things. We start to have trouble with planning and making decisions. Our physical health suffer as a result as well. So all of these things suffer when our mental health isn't good. And that the research makes very, very clear that that's the case. Great, thank you. Um, CDEs are in a position where they can provide people living with diabetes coping tools and resources. What are some coping mechanisms and resources that you'd recommend for CDEs to help them on their mental health journey? So I guess a few of those things I mentioned before uh, when we were talking about this, uh, but to go through those sort of again, or the, the key things, it's always check in with yourself and with others regularly. You need to have um, an ability just to touch bases, reflect, how am I doing, where am I at? And that needs to be done regularly so that you're doing that and identifying those moments very early in the piece because once you really need to identify them, it's often too late and you're not going to recognise that they're there. So that's the first thing I would say. You've got to check with those vulnerabilities and stresses that you have. Are they more than usual? Are things going on that I know affect me particularly? And that, that'll be different for different people. Check in with those warning signs. And a big one with that, I say, is always check in on your, what I call the go bag. Check in on your bag of tools that you go to when you can see that there are warning signs, when you can see that things are changing and you are 
starting to have a sort of a spiral downward or, or downwards or things are going on that aren't ideal. You need to have that that little preparation kit that's going to help you get back on track. Always make sure that that's well stocked and ready to go. Very, very important. That way you are able to, although we want to be proactive and deal with these things before they happen, you've also got the plan to be reactive if you need to do that as well. The big one around that is developing resilience tools. Now, the research is really, really clear on this. There are three kind of key areas that help us develop resilience, um, whether we're talking about people living with a condition or people who are in the health sector, you know, providing the support for people living with a condition. And those things are, you know, the first thing is you need to have predictability and stability in your life. And routine is absolutely king or queen of your world. Nobody will do this job well. Nobody will manage a chronic health issue well unless they have really good structures and routines in their life. Just won't happen. So that's the first thing, having good routines, having good structure so that you know what's coming next. The predictability of your day is there. The stability of what's happening is there. Essential. We can manage a whole lot of stress if we kind of know when it's going to stop or we know when the kind of reward's going to kick in, when we're going to have a chance to have a break, those kinds of things. Uh, really important. And when we have those routines, when we have those structures, that predictability in our life, we leave a lot more mental energy available to us to deal with those sudden changes, those additional stresses, those other things that come up. If we don't have structure and routine, we're using foundational sort of baseline mental energy, mental activity just to sort of see what's going to happen next. Avoid that. Have your baseline have your routines, have your structures, incredibly, incredibly important for developing resilience in this world we, we work in within the diabetes space. The second thing is having an outlet. You know, the people who have outlets for mind and body manage stress far, far better. Physical exercise, absolutely number one. And then also the mental exercise, whatever that might look like, uh, is also really, really important. We know that we can deal with an inordinate amount of stress and an inordinate amount of pressure if we have an outlet to sort of let it all go. If you think about stress, you think about pressures of our day-to-day -day life, it's a little bit like a jack-in-the-box being wound down and we get wound down and we get wound down and we get tighter and we get tighter and we get tighter. But if we're regularly sort of springing the jack out of the box, we get reset and we can deal with lots and lots of stress as long as we're regularly flicking the switch and letting the stress out of our system. So having an outlet, really, really important. The final thing is, and I've sort of mentioned this a couple of times already, is social affiliation, having social connections. The single biggest predictor of poor mental health is social isolation. That is very, very clear in the research. Um, it's also the single biggest predictor um, of things like poor physical health and early morbidity. So we as human beings are genetically designed to seek out connections, to seek out social affiliation. We are social creatures. It's genetically wired into us. So that's a really important element of resilience is having connections, making sure we have our outlets, making sure we have um, relationships with people that we trust, that we feel comfortable with as well. So they're, they're things that we should definitely be doing, some of the mechanisms we should be making use of. The other thing is know your limits. You need to know what is possible and what you've got to let go. That's really important. 
what can you control in your day-to-day activities and what can't you control in your day-to-day activities. So that, I guess, I alluded to a little bit before when I talked about values versus goals-based. That's certainly one way of being able to do that. We often, and it pains me to even say this, but we often work in a space where that old proverb, you can lead a horse to water, comes to mind. So we've got to get what part of the equation we control or part of the equation we can influence. Otherwise, we take on responsibility for something we have no ability to influence at all. So that's something to be really aware of as a, as a resource and as a way of, of managing these things. That's where other people can help us and remind us of those things as well. So I always sort of say you'll never be really mentally healthy if you stick to a goals-based sort of professional practice. Too much of that depends on other people and not you. So whether that's patients, whether that's employers, government, whatever it might be. So get back to what you've got control over. They're probably the main things I'd say as, as resources for us that we can control, things that we can internally maintain and manage and, and utilise on a day-to-day basis. Great. Thank you, Grant. Um, from your experience, at what point can medications be used to manage mental conditions um, for clinicians? And are there some medications that are preferred over others? Okay. So I guess the first thing to say is um, I'm not a psychiatrist, so I don't manage meds. So um, I'm going to give you some, some general information right now, but in all things and all ways, this is where you seek uh, the appropriate professional advice and uh, and listen to those professionals because they're the ones that know. Um, so that, that, let me be really, really clear about that to everyone who's, who's listening to the podcast. What I will say is medications do have their place. And if it is felt by the people that are helping you manage this space that that would be helpful, then listen to it and, and perhaps utilise it. There are a range of different types of medications depending on circumstance and what's going on. So to sort of say, hey, what medication should be used again, not really my space. So I'll give you a little bit of a rundown of some of the meds that, that, you know, are are typical that we might use. So generally speaking, you're going to be looking at things that are either helping with mood regulation, so antidepressant type medication, or it may be if we've got uh, massive amounts of anxiety and we're having trouble sleeping, we're having trouble regulating, then something that's more sedative in nature might be something that would be applied. So, you know, typically then you've got um, what we call SSRIs or the Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitors. So they're the things like Prozac, Lovan, Fluoxetine, Sertraline, Cipramil. There's any number of those that might come into play. And they basically just work by, in simple terms, just increasing the availability of serotonin in our brains so that we regulate mood through that medium. The other side of that would be your... Uh, anti-anxiety type medications or sedative medications, um, the sort of benzodiazepine type medications that, um, you know, work on um, the, the neurotransmitter GABA. They act as a bit of a sedative. They, they do have some risks of addiction and things like that, so we, they're always sort of used sparingly and used under very close supervision. But in times of pretty extreme stress, extreme duress, they do definitely uh, have their place. Um, If we're just dealing with some sleep challenges, something as simple as um, circadin or um, melatonin can be enough to help us get a few good nights sleep and help us get back into our routine. So some simple medications can often be beneficial 
in that space as well. And I guess the other one that uh, that uh, I will raise and um, and you know uh, that there's probably a little bit of controversy around because it's very new is that increasingly using medicinal cannabis in um, cases where there's extreme anxiety and this kind of stress space is showing itself to be potentially quite effective for a certain group of people. I'm not talking about uh, going out and finding your own source and um, and doing this as a self-medicating process. I don't suggest that at all. But um, certainly now you can go to your GP, particularly as an adult, you can go to your GP, talk about you know the anxiety and the stress and um, a medicinal cannabis um, process could be something that could be prescribed to you. And um, the feedback that I've certainly seen in people that I know who have gone down that path have certainly indicated that it's been very, very helpful for things like anxiety and for some people incredibly helpful for, for um, improving and um, getting them back into a regulated sleep pattern and so forth as well. So they're the sort of main ones that are probably going to um, pop up in, in this kind of space for professionals. Great. Thanks, Grant. Finally, is there anything in particular you'd like to share with our listeners today? And can you please summarise those key points? Some great points there. So, um, yeah, you can just get a summary of that. Absolutely. So I guess the first thing that I would say, and uh, I, I emphasise that everything I've said is the world according to Grant, so uh, you can't come and haunt me on your deathbeds or anything like that if you find out that um, that uh, that I've misled you down the garden path somewhere. But um, the first thing that, that I find as probably one of the most valuable tools for me in my professional practice, and uh, I certainly have, um, by almost any measure of the term, quite a stressful work environment on a day-to-day basis, is to become values-based. Find your five core values and work out how these can integrate into your professional endeavours and move away from that goals-based approach to your professional work. Doing that and being able to check in each day, at the end of a day, you can say, how do I know? How do I know that? How do I know today's been a good day? How do I know that was the right decision? How do I know I've made the right choices? How do I know? And if you can say I've been true to these sort of core values in your day-to-day life, then you know it's been a pretty good day, irrespective of some of the goals sort of outcomes that might be going on, the practical outcomes that may may be better or worse, for want of a better description, on any given day within our professional space. The second thing is establish a lifestyle that develops resilience. I'm I'm a clinical therapist. I'm a clinical psychologist. So this might sound strange for me to say this, but I believe in therapeutic lifestyle, not therapy. You need to establish a lifestyle that is beneficial to you, that, that helps you live your best life professionally and personally. So therapeutic lifestyle, that's essential. You know, some really good studies that sort of show those who work 80 hours a week are far less productive than those who work 30 or 40 hours a week. So um, more is not necessarily better in that case. So therapeutic lifestyle, develop resilience. Know, the next thing is know your vulnerabilities to, to your mental health challenges and to your own um, sort of characteristics of burnout. What are your vulnerabilities? What are your stresses? Know your warning signs that those things are getting too much. Know your plan to manage it or mitigate it and deal with it when it happens. So have that go bag ready to rock and roll, but prior to that, have everything in place that can help you never need that go bag. Um, make the go bag redundant, but don't make the go bag disappear, so to speak. 
the next thing I'd say, recruit confederates. Make sure that you've got your friends and family who help you identify those warning signs. They encourage you when it's needed and they carry you on the days you need it. Some days we just need a piggyback and that's okay too. So have those connections, have those contacts, develop that. Those of you who have multiple people within your workspace, work hard to develop that kind of culture in your workspace because that will make such a massive difference. Anyone who's worked in a wonderful, enriching kind of teamwork environment versus a sort of a toxic space will know how much that just background negativity can sap the energy and the motivation from you and your, your mental health from you. So develop those confederates. Establish those really good relationships with your colleagues, your supports, all of those things. Be open and honest with them when you need help. That's really important. Prevention, always better than a cure. That's that's the sort of big takeaway from that. Next thing is to say routines are king and queen of your life. No one manages this stuff successfully without having a routine. So establish those key routines in your life. Make sure you get plenty of sleep. Make sure your diet um, is good. Make sure you exercise regularly. Make sure you have those social connections. Um, really, really important. And I guess um, uh, two last things. One is if needed, don't be afraid of medication if that's where you get headed, whether it's as a maintenance thing or for a short-term need. Sometimes it, it's absolutely fine. So uh, it's kind of ironic that in the world we live in, we still maintain this idea that somehow our brains are separate from our bodies and we think nothing of um, taking a Panadol or we think nothing of using a splint if we sprain an ankle or you know, putting a cast on if we break a leg. But as soon as we start to talk about using a medical approach to mental health, there's this massive stigma attached. Um, you know, the dark ages are long gone. No one's been burned at the stake for um, witchcraft anymore, you know, and that was kind of what separated body from mind in the first place. We don't need that anymore. We can lose the stigma and we can actually just use those resources that are available to us when, when we need them. Final last thing I would say, Melissa, is... Don't be afraid of your anxieties, of your burnout, of your mental health challenges. Kind of befriend them. Um, I know that's a weird thing to say, but the more we push against, the more we fight, the more we judge those moments that we're down, those moments that we have a, a, a sense of weakness, and I don't in any way mean to imply this is a weakness, I just mean that sense that we have when we're in that vulnerable space. The more we push against it, fight against it and judge it, the more power we give it. But if we can kind of just recognise it for what it is, and that's just a fleeting up and down moment, happiness, sadness, joy, anxiety, all of these things are just part of the roller coaster. And so when we do that, we can kind of go, okay, here it comes. This is what I'm feeling. That's okay. I can validate that's how I feel. I can validate that I'm justified to feel this way based on the circumstances I find myself in. When we, when we do that, we disempower it and we empower ourselves. And then we are in a solution space where we can actually go and do something about it. The more power we give it, the more identity we give it, the less power we have over it. So make friends with it. Uh, it lets you move through it much quicker. They're my, they're my takeaways for today. Thanks, Grant. And thank you once again. It's been great to talk to you today. Thank you for taking the time um, to everyone to listen to this podcast. To obtain CPD credit for this podcast, please go to the ADA Learning Management System at learning.ada.com.au and complete a feedback and evaluation. Until next time, thank you, everybody. Goodbye. Goodbye.